For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Acts 17, verse 1 through 34. We're going to be looking at this, and I entitled it Bridging Christ and Culture. You know, one of the real problems that we run into is that whenever the message of Christianity comes into a particular culture, there are a number of barriers that we face in reaching people for Christ. And Paul faced some of these as well. And yet he showed an adept ability, I guess, to go in and share the message of Christ in a way that was culturally relevant. So I want to go through this passage and look at some principles for how to do this more effectively. Let's start in verse 1. Paul and Silas traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service. That was his typical routine. Anytime he would come into a city, he would settle in for a little bit, and then he would go and find the nearest synagogue. Remember, in Acts chapter 16, he was searching for a synagogue, and yet he couldn't find one. In this case, he found one there in Thessalonica. And we're told for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about, he is the Messiah. So he used the scriptures to reason with the people and he explained the prophecies proving that the Messiah must suffer and die. Now, if you've ever taken a basic philosophy class, you probably know that it's impossible to prove anything. And yet, Luke uses this language where he says that Paul was proving that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, you have to remember who he was talking to. These guys were either Jewish or God-fearing Greeks, people who subscribed to the tenets of Judaism, but didn't want to undergo circumcision. They had a common base upon which they could have a dialogue concerning the scriptures. They both viewed um, the basis of truth as coming from God's written word, the Bible. If he could furnish some evidence from the Old Testament, remember the New Testament wasn't written at this time, that came you know, a few decades later, that if he could show them from the Old Testament that there were in fact prophecies showing that Jesus was the Messiah, then that would be a slam dunk case for them and they would believe. And so that's probably the sense in which Luke is saying that Paul ex explained and proved that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and, and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and a few prominent women. Not too bad, considering this was his first outing in the city. He goes to the synagogue and he wins over a number of people who were persuaded. So I think that this points to the fact that Paul didn't shy away from using Old Testament prophecy to persuade people to believe in Christ. You know, if you have ever looked into evidence for the Bible, you'll know that there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that predict uh, different aspects of Jesus' coming, 
It predicts what he would do during his ministry on earth as well as his death and his resurrection. And so Paul utilized this whenever he was speaking to people. And I think this brings us to our first principle of being able to reach people effectively is that we shouldn't hesitate to marshal biblical prophecy whenever we're talking to non-Christian people about Christ. I think that we're sometimes a little bit afraid to bring in Scripture because maybe people are a little bit skeptic, skeptical about it. But we believe that the written Word of God contains power to convict people. In the book of Hebrews the author says that the Bible is actually living and active, that it penetrates in between people's souls and, it, and God's word gets lodged into people's hearts. So we shouldn't hesitate in doing this. And, um, you know, for me, I know that biblical prophecy was actually one of the things that persuaded me eventually to turn my life to Christ. I was pretty skeptical about Christianity and I remember encountering somebody who said, you know, there's ample evidence for belief in Christianity. And I said, you got to show me that. And he started laying out a few Old Testament prophecies that gave a pretty accurate prediction of how Jesus would die. And for me, that was just, that was it. I was like, I couldn't believe that there was actual evidence for belief in Christianity. And it made me comfortable investigating Christianity further because I knew that I didn't have to like check in my brain before I started studying the Bible that there was actual uh, evidence that I could look at. And so we should do that for others. People are very skeptical about the Bible. And we should show them that God has actually authenticated his message through Old Testament prophecy. Verse 5, but some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. It sounds like a broken record if you read through the book of Acts with us. Any place Paul would go and he would start to get some traction, some people would form a mob out of jealousy. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Apparently, Paul had won this guy over, Jason, and Jason took Paul and Silas, along with their other companions, into his house. And these guys, when they heard word that apparently Jason was housing these guys, kicked down the door and were searching for Paul, but he wasn't there. So instead, they drugged Jason out. Not finding them there, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers and took him before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And now they're here disturbing our city too. So apparently, these people had heard about Paul and what he was saying in these different cities that he was causing a stir. Uh, and Jason, this guy, has welcomed them into his home. They're guilty of treason against Caesar for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. These are serious allegations that... These guys were guilty of treason and claiming that there was somebody superior to Caesar who was like a deity-like figure at the time. The people of the city as well as the city council were thrown into turmoil about these reports. So the officials forced Jason and other believers to post bond and then they released them. 
That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. So as soon as they got sprung from jail, somebody paid their bond, they went and ran to Paul and Silas. They're like, get out of here. They're looking for you. And so they left and went to this place called Berea. And when they arrived there, they went again to a Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So these Bereans were persuaded, just like many of the people that Paul encountered in Thessalonica, but we're told that the Bereans took things a step further. They weren't willing to just give Paul a hearing. They were actually willing to go further and investigate for themselves what Paul was saying. We're told that they listened eagerly to his message, and then they searched the scriptures day after day to see if what they were teaching was actually true. So they would hear what Paul would say, then they'd run home, do a careful inquiry of the scripture to make sure that it's exactly what was said, and then they'd probably go back with further questions and then hear more. So these guys were, they had integrity when it came to investigating the evidence. And I think as followers of Christ, we should also have this kind of integrity where whenever we hear something, we need to make sure that that checks out with what we read in the scriptures. I like it when, you know, I come to a venue like this and I'm teaching and, you know, I see somebody with their Bible open, they got their finger right on the passage or looking up at what I'm saying and they're looking down at their Bible and it shows that they've got integrity, that they're actually making sure that that's exactly what God says in his written word. It really bothers me whenever I hear somebody say, well, that's just what my uh, pastor told me growing up. That's what he would always teach or that's what my priest would say. That's just like, you know, old dry erase marker on a board just, you know, squealing and just like, oh, God, I hate to hear that. Um, we should all aspire to be like the Bereans who really investigate and have the integrity to check what people are saying. Learn for ourselves. But when some of the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they were, they were stirred up with trouble. And the believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. So Paul had to escape by himself. And we're told that Silas and Timothy, they decided to stay back in Berea. Those escorting Paul went with him all, to the way, uh, all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now it's interesting that we're told that um, they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. Paul didn't like the idea of being out there by himself, contrary to what we envision in our minds about Paul, that he was sort of this lone ranger who was just blazing this trail for Christ by himself. No, we're told that he actually was eager to have them join back with him because he liked, he liked the companionship. 
But he strolls into maybe the greatest city in the ancient world, Athens. It's hard to really describe the prominence Athens had in the ancient world. Most scholars today view Athens as the cradle of Western civilization as we know it. We know that during the 5th century, it was a a powerful, democratic uh, city-state. And really, a lot of democratic systems are based in some part on what we see in Athens and in Greece. We also know that, that Athens boasted an incredible literary, academic uh, group of people. We know that uh, historians such as Thucydides, who wrote the Peloponnesian Wars, Herodotus, who wrote the Persian Wars, came from Athens. Uh, we know that some great writers such as Sophocles and Euripides came from there. And we also know that Plato's Academy was located in Athens, as well as Aristotle's uh, school of thought there. And so Athens was this incredible city that was just burbling with, you know, with intellectual thought and creativity. And so I'm sure that Paul was just awestruck walking into this city. We know that there were these incredible temples that were built in dedication to the pantheon of gods there. And yet we're told that Paul even though I'm sure he was struck by the beauty of Athens, was mostly troubled by all the idols that he saw in the city. Literally, it was full of idols. And it conveys a sense that the whole city was just swamped with idols. Uh, Xenophon, a famous writer, says that it was easier to find a Greek god in Athens than there was to identify a man that there were so many altars, so many temples dedicated to the gods that the entire city was just filled with it, contained them. Well, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. And then he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers. Um, It's amazing all the different people that he was trying to reach here, first of all, we're told that he goes to a synagogue. So he was reaching the religious people, probably showing them the same Old Testament passages he showed the Jewish believers in Thessalonica and Berea, persuading them uh, about Christ. And then we're told that he also was able to go to the public square, the Agora, which not only represented the marketplace, but also it was the center of life in a city. And, you know, Paul, where he came from in in Tarsus, that city was actually a major, um, you know, uh, artery in the ancient world. And so Paul was used to seeing merchants from distant lands who spoke different uh, languages, who were from different races, coming through the city. And Tarsus had a major agora. And so he felt adept at going into the agora and speaking to the people there and talking about Christ to anybody who would be, who would be willing to give him a listen. In addition to that, we're also told that he went to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics were the intellectuals of the day. 
And Epicureans believed that God was distant. And as a result, there was no judgment after death. And so they believed that the best way to live life was just to live for pleasure, since life was going to end soon. The Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, were more pantheistic in their view. They believed that God was sort of everywhere and that life was determined. They were fatalists. And so they believed that a person should live by their duty and in harmony with nature and in reason. So Paul was able to have a a debate with these guys at the highest level. Now, again, if you look to Paul's background in Tarsus, Tarsus was one of three cities in the ancient world that boasted, um, you know, this incredible, um, you know, intellectual um, climate, rivaling really Athens. And we know that Paul studied under a famous rabbi, Gamaliel. So Paul, because of his background, felt comfortable talking to the Jewish people, the religious people. He felt comfortable talking to the common people and the Agora. But he could have a pretty high-level discussion with some of the intellectuals of his own day. And so this shows that Paul showed incredible versatility engaging with people from every walk of life. And um, I think that that's important, that as followers of Christ, we are able to engage with all people. We're able to have um, dialogue with those who are from more of a religious background, those who maybe don't have very much, uh, um, you know, uh, they're, they're not very churched. We need to be able to talk to them, as well as having discussions with people who are intellectuals. And we should be able to hang with them as well. It's important for us to see that we shouldn't limit ourselves to reaching people just like us, which is the second principle. I'll talk to some younger guys about sharing their faith in class or at work. And they're always like, I don't have anybody to talk to. And um, I'm like, wait, so you're saying that you literally have no one that you can talk to? And what they really mean is that They have nobody like them who they feel comfortable talking to. You know, they talk to the middle-aged woman that they see every single day or, you know, this person who is totally different than them and they simply exclude those people because they're like, you know, I can't relate to this person. Yet when we look at the model that the Apostle Paul gives us, he was able to talk to everybody. He was able to, to immerse himself in other people's lives, taking an interest in their lives and to be able to effectively communicate Christ with them. When he told them about Jesus and the resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some other God. So apparently even Paul had trouble in cross-cultural communication about Christ. They didn't quite understand what he was saying. Well, then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as all the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. That was sort of like their favorite pastime. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are all very religious in every way. 
For as I was walking along, I saw many of your shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. So Paul is uh, strolling through Athens, observing the city, and he takes, he stumbles across this altar which contains an inscription to an unknown God. Now, this actually has some interesting historical background. Diogenes, a third century A.D. writer, in his book called The Lives of Eminent Philosophers, uh, talks about a man named Epimenides, who was a poet and Greek philosopher. Actually, he was, he was from Crete. And apparently what happened was in the 5th century B.C., there was a plague that broke out in the city, claiming many people's lives. And the elders of Athens felt confused, and they decided to summon this guy named Epimenides because he was so wise. And so they brought Epimenides from Crete, and when he arrived on land, he said he addressed the council on Mars Hill. He said, the next morning, what I want you to do is I want you to um, take some sheep, both, you know, uh, white and black, spotted, a mixture. And I don't want you to feed them at all the night before. And then I want you to bring them here the next morning along with some stonemasons. And so the people were very confused. They didn't understand what his plan was, but they decided to go with it because they were so desperate. So they show up the next morning, and he says, I want you to set these sheep free. And... The ones that don't forage but lay in the grass, I want you to take note of the spot in which they lay, and I want you to build an altar there. We're going to sacrifice those sheep, and that's going to appease the gods. And the people thought, that's insane. You know, a sheep that hasn't eaten all day, they're going to forage uh, on this lush grass, or they're going to walk around this lush grass and not forage at all. And to their surprise, Several of the sheep lay down without foraging at all. And so the people mark those spots. Immediately, Epimenides told him, I want you to build an altar right there. And when the stonemason said, who should we dedicate this to? He said, we should dedicate it to an unknown God. And so they constructed those altars, sacrificed those animals. And according to Diogenes, the plague subsided. And so centuries later, Paul is walking through that same area of Mars Hill and he stumbles across one of these altars. And he says, you know, that unknown God, this is the God whom I'm describing, who I'm talking about. And so Paul, he was always foraging for relevant ways to introduce the message of Christianity. He, he was a student of his culture. And in the same way, uh, we need to consume media, literature, and art with a critical eye, seeking ways to expose ideologies that drive our culture, just like what Paul did. You know, a lot of times we are passively consuming these things, and we might even be buying into the underlying values. And yet Paul, he was able to see beneath that. He was able to, to see that there were ideologies driving these people that were contained in their literature, in their culture. And he used that as an opportunity to be able to 
introduce Christ? Well, he says, this God whom you worship without knowing, he's the one I'm telling you about. And so he uses that as a launch pad for what he's going to say in the rest of his speech. But again, this is interesting because Paul assumes that people possess an inner sense of the one true God. He jumps right to that. Even though they lived in a polytheistic society, culture, where there were hundreds of gods that they worshipped, he just assumed that they knew inherently, I guess, on, on a deeper level that there was, a one, there was one true God that needed to be worshipped. Paul actually elaborates on this in Romans 1, verse 18 through 20. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made so that people are without excuse. Notice that? He says, when you look out into the world and when you look to yourself, there's an imprint suggesting God's design. And it's so clear to people that he says people are without excuse. And yet he points out that the reason why people disregard God has to do with the fact that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that we find new and inventive ways to explain the world without God. In large part because we don't want to have to acknowledge him or have to account to him for our lives. You know, I was thinking about what are new ways or new inventive ways that, you know, in our culture, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And immediately what pops to my mind is this concept of scientism. You know, scientism is the belief that uh, truth can only be found through science. Any objective truth, that is. John Lennox, in his book, um, God's Undertaker, defines it this way. He says, science enables us to understand what we did not understand before, and by giving us understanding of nature, it gives us power over nature. Think about the blind optimism people have in science, that one day it's going to completely eradicate cancer. They could potentially uh, prolong our lives uh, in a way that, that seems, you know, uh, miraculous, so to speak. That science really explains all the things that uh, people used to say was a result of God. And so uh, we really have discarded with this idea of God as the creator or designer of the world because science has explained all of the, all of the gaps that we had in our knowledge. You know, you'll hear people say stuff like this, like science has replaced our need for faith. One of the problems with that is that science fails to answer some of the biggest questions in life. Francis Collins, the former director of the Human Genome Project, says this, Science is powerless to answer questions such as, Why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? What happens after we die? You know, it can't answer some of these, these deeper questions 
Uh, it may explain some of the mechanisms which have brought the universe into existence, but it can't explain the cause of its existence. Also, you know, we exercise faith in really every area of life, including science. You know, when you came here and you scouted out the chair that you eventually sat on, you know, did you evaluate and think, oh, that, you know, it's got four legs. I think I saw somebody sitting on that last week. Maybe it was the same chair. I don't know. But, you know, I'm going to put my full weight on this and trust, put my faith, really, that it's going to work, right? We exercise faith on a daily basis. You know, when you went to Taco Bell last night, you exercised faith that you could eat whatever you had there without having to bring another change of underwear, right? This works also in science. You know, think about, for instance, Newton's uh, inverse square law of gravitation. You know, it explains how uh, planets orbit around the sun in ellipses. And based on that, we can predict things like, you know, lunar and, uh, you know, eclipses. And yet, it presupposes one thing, that what happened today or yesterday will happen tomorrow. And so there's still an element of faith that even in science, you know, the things that have been true, the pattern that has been established will continue on. And so we would have to say that uh, even science has to rely in part on faith. Really, scientism's fatal error uh, has to do with the self-refuting nature that uh, many s- people who hold to scientism put forth. Bertrand Russell, the famous uh, atheist and logician, says, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods, and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Okay. It's sort of shameful that Bertrand Russell, who is a logician, Uh, failed to see the problem with his own statement. Because the question that comes to my mind is, how does he know? His statement is not a statement of scientific fact, and so therefore it is unknowable, right? Look at what John Lennox has to say. He summarizes it way better than I do. He says, what destroys scientism completely is the fatal flaw of self-contradiction that runs through it. Scientism does not need to be refuted by external argument. It self-destructs. For the statement that only science can lead to truth is not itself deduced from science. It is not a scientific statement, but rather a statement about science. Therefore, if scientism's basic principle is true, the statement expressing scientism must be false. Scientism refutes itself, hence it is incoherent. It's pretty sharp, pretty good. And then also, you hear people sometimes saying this. Now, what we understand, now that we understand the mechanisms which animate the universe, we can dismiss this whole notion that God fashioned the universe. You know, it's really the God of the gaps argument has been completely dismantled because of science. And yet, uh, you know, if you think about this in the form of an, an illustration, you know, imagine if you took a Ford Model T and dropped it off in the middle of a rural village. 
And the people who saw this Model T uh, vehicle um, had never seen a car before, and they don't understand uh, the principles of combustion or what operate this car. You know, they might conclude as they uh, look into the car that there is a Mr. Ford residing within the Model T that animates the Model T, right? And that when it starts up, that it's because Mr. Ford approves or is, is happy with the people of the village. But when the car does not start up, he's very angry and disapproves. Now, you can imagine if one of the villagers decided to go to school somewhere and earn an engineering degree, he would come back and he could dismantle the entire uh, Model T and figure out that there is no Mr. Ford residing inside the Model T. That the simple principles of combustion explain everything that happened when the engine starts. But it would be a mistake for him to conclude that a Mr. Ford never existed because he now understands the principles of combustion. Because if there was no Mr. Ford, then he would have no Model T to be able to uh, understand or look at. And so likewise, when we, when we talk about the mechanisms of nature, they cannot bring things into being. Okay? They're, they're laws. It's really a category error to suggest that now that we understand science, the mechanisms that essentially animate the universe, that we can now dismiss the thing driving the whole thing, the origin of the universe. A, sci a scientific or mathematical law presupposes an agent. Think about, for example... The simple law of arithmetic, 1 plus 1 equals 2. That never brought anything into being by itself. It certainly hasn't put any money in my bank account. You know, if I decided to deposit $1,000 into my savings account and then sometime later deposit another $1,000, I'd have $2,000. And so the law of arithmetic, it essentially describes what happened. But if I decided not to put any money into my bank account and simply believe that the laws of arithmetic would bring into being in my bank account money, then I would continue to be a broke person. And so uh, the law of arithmetic, it describes something, but it can never bring something into being. You know, John Lennox says, the world of strict naturalism in which clever mathematical laws all by themselves bring the universe and life into existence is pure, and one might add, poor fiction. To call it science fiction would be to besmirch the name of science. He's a Brit. So, you know, as you can see, this whole idea of scientism, that science has essentially explained everything, and that we have no need for God now. We can discard with this whole concept of God really has a lot of problems with it. We need to be able to uh, look at our culture and see some of these things that, that people are putting forward and be able to dismantle those in a way that Lennox you know, does in his books as well as other people.
So this leads to our fourth principle, which is that we should seek to dismantle the ideologies under which people take shelter. Just like Paul did. You know, he was able to uncover the problems with the ideology that that was driving people in their culture. To use Francis Schaeffer's term, uh, he wrote a book about 50 years ago called The God Who Is There, and he used this term, taking the roof off of someone's head. And uh, he says that when we do that, where we take somebody's worldview or their ideology and we remove that, it exposes them. And he points out that it's unpleasant to be submerged by an avalanche, but we must allow the person to undergo this experience so that they may realize his system has no answer to the crucial questions of life. He must come to know that his roof is a false protection from the storm. And so we need to delicately but also directly uncover some of the problems with people's ideology that prevents them from actually coming to know Christ. Well, in verse 24 and 25, Paul says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and so he satisfies every need. Remember, they lived in a society where there were hundreds of gods, and they had constructed numerous temples as well as altars in dedication to these gods, And Paul points out, this God, the one I'm talking about, he doesn't need a house for people to build, to live in. He is is the God of the universe. He says human hands can't serve his needs. Paul says, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I'm not sure I really like this translation. In verse 27, the New American Standard Bible says this, that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. I like that imagery. You know, you're in the darkness and you're groping around trying to find your way, and yet... um, Paul says that he's not far from us. And so, contrary to the Epicurean view where God was distant, Paul points to the fact that God is actually nearby. He's close. And even though we search for him, he's standing right there. He's waiting for us. I love that imagery. It kind of reminds me of, uh, have you ever watched that movie, Silence of the Lambs? Uh, At the end of the movie... Uh, Jodie Foster is in this basement, this dark basement of a serial killer named Wild Bill. And she's groping around in the darkness. And, uh, you know, Wild Bill is just standing right there because he's got these uh, night vision goggles. (laughs) Uh, And it kind of reminded me of this. Except for, uh, except God's not creepy like Wild Bill. Well, verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Um, Paul was quoting from the poet Aretas, and uh, he was quoting his own poets to them in order to try to connect with them. 
And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everywhere, everyone to repent of their sins and to turn to him. This really represents the primary message of Christianity that, you know, God wants us to repent, which means to have a change of mind, to alter our course, and to turn to Him. You know, the Bible says that God has paved the way for us to be able to come to Him. That He sent His own Son, Jesus, to die in order to pay for the sins that we deserve to pay ourselves. And by turning to Him and asking for forgiveness, we can actually forge a relationship with God. Well, he says, For He has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man He has appointed, and He's proved to everyone who this is by raising Him from the dead. And when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, they laughed in contempt. But others said, We want to hear more about this later. So this divided the crowd. A large group of people who were listening were just totally turned off as soon as he mentioned this idea of rising from the dead. The Greeks were dualists. They believed in a complete separation between the soul and the physical body. And they believed that the physical actually defiled the spiritual. And so this concept of rising from the dead bodily was repulsive to them. And yet there were some people who were interested in what he was saying and wanted to hear more. And so that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and, and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So some commentators, they, they look at this event and think this was a major failure in Paul's life, in his ministry. And that as a result, he reinvented his approach that we see later on in the book of Acts. But I'm not sure that I agree with that. I mean, think about what Paul was able to do. He took these guys who were at like, I don't know, zero or negative 15, and uh, got persuaded some of them to actually turn to Christ. I would say that that's pretty good uh, to win a few people to Christ uh, in just one talk. And so I don't believe that Paul failed at all. I think he actually paved the way for us today by giving us a model for how to engage culture. Let's draw a few points of application. First of all, we need to consume media, art, and literature with an eye to see underlying ide ideologies. Just like Paul did. You know, he, he was a student of his culture. He uh, took in literature. He understood the culture in which he was trying to reach. And we need to be able to do the same thing. We need to be able to meet people where they are at. And so uh, that means that we're always looking for ways to be able to connect with our culture, to be able to find ways to, to launch into a message about Christ. Secondly, we need uh, to keep our eyes open for relevant new ways to convey the message of Christ. Um, it means that we are, you know, thinking about this and um, that we are observing our culture. Third, it also means that we should seek to dismantle ideologies under which people take shelter, like, like Schaefer said. 
part of the message of Christ means that people see the bankrupt nature of their own worldview. And that can be a painful process. Uh, I know it was for me when somebody was confronting my views, shooting holes right through them. I was just, I was devastated. And yet, I'm so grateful that the person who was willing to engage me and gently show me that this roof that I had over my head, so to speak, uh, was shot full of holes, showed incredible compassion. And so we need to be able to exhibit compassion as we are exposing the false thoughts that keep people prisoner or, keep, or prevent them from seeing their need for God. Yeah, Lord, we know that uh, the reason why Paul was able to uh, reach people where they were at and to um, be able to share the message of Christ with a variety of people from different backgrounds has to do with his uh, love for people. And um, that's what caused him to uh, get outside of what was comfortable for him and to um, get immersed in other people's lives and in their culture. And uh, I pray that we would uh, follow his example and um, our desire to uh, love people and share your love with people, that we would uh, find ways to be able to connect with people in our culture. And uh, I pray, too, that we would be uh, students of our culture, like Francis Schaeffer and some of these other guys who um, really were ahead of their time, and um, pray that we can uh, provide that, the, the penetrating critique that, that he was able to provide in his day about the culture, uh, but also do so with uh, you know, just a tone of compassion and empathy like he did as well. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.